Good morning. I want to uh, add my welcome as well. My name is Eric Hoffman, the campus pastor here at Fellowship Franklin. So good to be with you. Uh, I want to start off just by saying uh, if you've missed uh, a couple teachings in this series, but especially last week's, Rob did an incredible job uh, walking us through Hagar. But it's, uh, we record these every Sunday and post them to our web. So you can go on our website and listen to those. But Rob uh, walked through the story of Hagar and just uncovering this painful story of Hagar, but seeing also how Jesus sees us in our pain. He sees us, and he hears us, and he finds us. And so I really want to encourage you to uh, listen to that message. This morning, if you uh, have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 17, or you can tap your way there. And uh, one of the things that we're going to be walking through today is just the significance of this text, that Abram is now going to become Abraham. God is going to change his name. And it's been such a struggle, I know, for all the teaching pastors to just say Abram, 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 because it's so hard not to just think of him as Abraham. But this morning, it's a pivotal text. God is going to reveal a name of himself to Abraham. And then also change his name. Uh, names have a significant meaning. They have a lot of weight in the Old Testament. And for us, they have a significant meaning as well. I remember with all three of our boys uh, just trying to come up with the name. I mean, this is what they're going to be named the rest of their lives, right? It's like there's a lot of pressure in that. And I remember, uh, there, I think it was with Miles, like we didn't even have a name like picked out. They're like, you have to put a name down for the Social Security. And like we had to... Like, okay, we're, we're going to do it. We're going to name him. But more specifically, uh, with Luke, I remember uh, Melissa and I having uh, conversations back and forth about, like, what the name, what, how, what we're going to name him. And he was our firstborn. And so we would, we would suggest a name. We'd throw out a name. And then she'd be like, well, I knew a kid in middle school who did that. So, like, I don't want our kid to end up like him. And, and it got me thinking, like, teachers must have, like, the hardest time naming their kids because it's just like you've had all these terrors throughout your years, and you're like, all your names are gone, you know? So the, uh, the thing uh, that happened, though, is, is I, I can't remember how far along Melissa was, and we had put together Luke's nursery. And I was sitting there, and I was reading through Luke, and it's Father's Day. I don't know why it got me first service, too. And I just remember reading, uh, getting to chapter 3, when, when Jesus is baptized and God the Father speaks audibly and says, This is my son in whom, my beloved son in whom I love, and I am well pleased. And I remember thinking, um, I want his name to remind me that that's how God sees me. He doesn't see me because of what I can do for him to earn his love and his acceptance. But because of what Christ has done, I have it. It is, it is mine. Like, I am loved because of my relationship with God. And I wanted, every time that I, I thought about Luke's name and why we named him that, to remind me of his worth and value. It does not come by what he does or doesn't do, but be that he is my son in whom I love. And so this morning, I, we're going to end our service, just so you know those name tags. I hope you didn't put your actual name on it. We're actually going to end this morning with you writing a name down that is actually true of you. It's a promise of God, but sometimes we have a hard time believing that reality. And so we're going to end this morning with hopefully you leaving, feeling that I can put my faith in the promise of what God says I am and who I am, rather than who we think we are, who we think we have to live up to. So let's start in Genesis 17. Now, this is a whole chapter that they've given me today, so I think that's a little bit unfair of them, but um, 
But so uh, we're, we're not going to read all, all of it, so I, I would really encourage you to go back home today or tomorrow morning and, and read through the whole chapter. But as, as we start off, Genesis 17, 1. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. So God's revealing who he is even more so to Abram. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. So God reveals himself to Abram in this, telling him more of who he is. Now God Almighty, translated, is from El Shaddai. And every time I hear the words El Shaddai, I don't know about you, but I think of Amy Grant's 1990s song. I don't remember if it was in the 90s, but it's just like, it just kind of plays over in my head. But so this, this is the first time it appears in Scripture. It appears 48 other times in the Old Testament, but 31 times in the book of Job. And the idea behind this name is of a mighty mountain. Like, that's kind of like the, the, the posture of this name. So when you, when you, I want to show an image. When you see a mountain, like, what do you, what comes to mind? What, what do you think of? I mean, right away you think of your smallness compared to the vastness of the mountain. You may think of if I'm not careful climbing that mountain, like there's a little fear, there's a healthy fear and respect of the mountain, but there's awe and beauty and beholding all that the mountain is. And that is kind of the, the imagery behind this. I remember uh, in high school uh, with some friends of mine in the youth group, we climbed Hikes Peak. Now, climbed is the wrong word, uh, hiked, hiked Pikes Peak. And so we got up towards the, towards the top. And I remember there's you know, I'm not used to the altitude and dehydration, and you're just exhausted. And there's, this, there's these parts where you're zigzagging back and forth, and there's like at any moment, this mountain could take my life, or a storm could come in. And there's this healthy respect of the mountain, but there's also, you would turn a corner and see like rams like hopping down, or you'd just be in awe of the beauty and the majesty of the mountain. That's kind of what Almighty God is encompassing in this now, as God reveals himself more and more in the scriptures, we have this ability to read all of that God reveals himself. But Abram is slowly, God is revealing himself to him. Now, God does not reveal himself to us in his word so that we would just know more about him, but that we would actually come to know him. This important point in this, that when God asks him to walk before him, it isn't just know more about me and then just go about your life. It is walk before me, be blameless and perfect. This, is, this isn't so much of being blameless in the sense that Abram is to walk perfectly with God. Like that would be impossible. Like just to be perfect perfect and he doesn't make any mistakes. It's more of walk openly and honestly before me. Walk with me. There's an element of communion with God in this that he's calling him into in a covenant relationship. Noah uh, was also, the same phrase was kind of used of Noah in Genesis 6-9. Noah was a righteous and blameless man in his time, and Noah walked with God. So Noah, we, we know, was not perfect, but he walked with God. He put his faith in him. And what was Abram's response to God revealing his name, but also revealing that he wanted a covenant with him? Abram's response was to fall prostrate before God. 
He fell on his face before God. Now, I can't think of a better posture that we should even be in. When we come before a God Almighty, that we need him, that we are in awe of his majesty, but yet he wants to be in relationship with us and provides a way for us to do so, it should leave us just humbly before him in worship. So you pick up with me in verse 3. Abram fell on his face and talked with him, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall, your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I love this phrase, and God talked with him. Now, what is true of a very few people in the Old Testament, there's very few people that talked with God in this way. But what is true of very few in the Old Testament is true of every single believer in the New Testament. That we have the opportunity in Christ to come before God with a confidence and assurance that he hears us. We actually have the audience with the God of the universe. Have you ever thought about your prayer life like that? Instead of coming to God with just requests or just kind of trying to get through it, that you have an audience with the God of the universe. That should leave us in awe. That should, be, that should leave us in worship, and that is Abram's response. But then in this, uh, Abram, the, the two words that are translated into Abram is father and exalted. So God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Sarai, later in this chapter, uh, God changes her name to Sarah, meaning princess. So with these name changes, God's actually establishing that they are going to become heirs, like royalty. They're going to become the ones which they're reckon, he's recognizing that they are actually the ones who are going to be through this line. Now, if you look in verse 4, this is, a, this is a pretty interesting thing that's going to carry over into the promise. In verse 4, and then two more times in verse 5, he, God reinforces the promise through what? His name. He does this a couple of different times in a couple of different ways. Verse 4, you will be a father of multitudes, which means Abraham. Verse 5, your name shall be called Abraham. Uh, that is a father of multitudes. And then again in verse 5, for I have made you the father of multitudes. God speaks in the future tense and in the present. You will be, your name is, and I have made you. When God changes his name, he is confirming what will happen as if it already has. So how is that true? God can do that because whatever God says is a guarantee. It is going to happen. His promises are true. We can walk in them because he has said it. So he can say something in a future tense, but also say in a present tense because it is reality. So that's what he's doing in this when he speaks his name. Now, how true, though, is it that while the promises are true because God speaks it, sometimes our reality doesn't line up with what has been promised? You think about Abram and his story. In Genesis 12, when God first gives him the promise, how old is Abram? He's 75. How old is he in this text that we're here today? 99. So God has promised that he will be a father. He'll be a blessing to all the nations. He, every person on earth will be blessed through him. But is he a father through the line of Sarah? Like him and, him and Sarah, have they produced offspring? Not yet. 
So he's living with this reality, but this promise has not showed up. Can you imagine now, imagine with me, Abram has been Abram for 99 years. Everyone knows him as Abram. And now he's going to step out from this encounter with God and have to go up to people and be like, uh, I want you to call me Abraham. Okay? I mean, like, dude, I've known you as Abram for 99 years. Like, what, you know, but you can imagine he is now every time that he says his name and every time someone says, is, calls him, hey, Abraham, he is reminded of the promise of God in his life. I mean, it's, it's got to be distinct. It's only going to be for a year, but you've, you've got to imagine that every single time someone calls him Abraham, that he's reminded that he is not yet a fo- father of multitudes, but because God has proclaimed it, and he's going to proclaim it through Sarah, that he is actually going to be a reality. So again, I wanna, uh, we're going to end up our service this way, but what is something that God is saying to you that is true of you in Christ but that you have a hard time believing because your reality doesn't match up with the promise. So what would it look like for God to say that name to you? Would you continue with me in verse 6? We're going to continue on. And in this, this is, this is where the story just starts moving, but it, who's moving the story along? Who's moving the narrative? Who is doing all of the action? It's not Abraham, Abraham, go and do this, and then this will happen. It is God who is moving the story along. We get a glimpse of what God is doing. And it says this, it is God who will make the nation. God will establish his covenant. It is God who will bless. It is God who will multiply him. It is God who will make him fruitful. It is God who will give them the land. So Abraham is not to walk in obedience, not his own efforts, but in the promises of God and God's faithfulness to fulfill what God has already said he would do. Abraham is just to walk openly and obedient in relationship with him. So this is, this is the thing where I, after I read this passage several times, I had to sit back and think, so who is moving this along Whose faithfulness is this dependent on? Whose security are we put to put our faith in? It is God. It is God who will make him exceedingly fruitful. It was God who will make him a nation. It, will, it was God that that will happen. It was God who will establish the covenant. It is God who will give them the land. It was God. It's God that is the center of Abraham's faith. The thing that I kept thinking this week is how hard it is for us to actually put God at the center of our faith. Another way of phrasing it, because this is a, a hard question, but another way of phrasing it is, who are you actually trusting in your life? Who is the one that is actually, you're leaning in control of your life? Is it the work of your hands or the work of God's hands? I mean, maybe you came to faith uh, trusting that you, you needed a Savior, but then who's responsible for your growth? Maybe you came uh, this morning and, and you're, you're recognizing that I'm anxious all the time. I worry all the time. I'm trying to control every area of my life. Because what we're going to see in just a second is Abraham doubts just like we do. But who is at the center of our lives when we are trying to take control? I believe when we shift from God being the center of our faith to ourselves, 
it's because we forget the promises of God. We forget what God is actually promising to do in our lives. Timothy Keller says this, when I forget that I am justified by faith alone, I have a tendency to go to guilt and regret about my past. I therefore live in bondage to idols of power and money that make me feel better about myself. When I forget that I am being sanctified by the presence of God's Holy Spirit, I give up on myself and I stop trying to change. When I forget my adoption in the family of God, I become full of fears and I don't pray with candor and I lose my confidence and I try to hide my faults from God and myself. We can structure our lives in such a way that we actually don't need God. And we do this in so many different ways. Or we become so cold to the fact that God has been working in our lives that instead of gratitude, we're left with entitlement. We know that we're actually placing ourselves at the center of our faith when things are going well in life and it leads us to pride and arrogance and criticalness of others and judgment. And when things are going well, it leads us to resentment and blame and guilt and shame. So who is at the center of your faith? Who is it that is moving your story along? That Whose plans are at the center of your life? See, there's a very big difference between believing the doctrine that God is sovereign and has a plan and actually living out of that reality in our everyday lives. So would you uh, turn with, uh, keep following with me, uh, 17, 9 through 27, I'm going to pretty much summarize kind of what happens at the last part of this chapter. We, we see that God is going to change Abram's wife's name, Sarai, to Sarah. She's going to be a mother of nations. That royalty is going to come from her. Now, at this point, Abraham, what does he do? He falls on his face again, but not so much in worship. What does he do? He falls on his face and he laughs. And he says in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? Abraham is still not fully believing the promise that God's going to do this through Sarah and him. And that phrase is a really interesting one. He says in his heart. Again, we can go back to cognitively, we believe things about the truth of of the gospel, of what Christ has done for us. But as it's soaked down into the very depths of our heart, where it actually affects how we live. For out of the heart is the wellspring of life. What we actually believe in our heart of hearts actually is how we live, what drives us, why we do certain things. It's the why in our lives. And so if, if the thing about with Abraham is he says in his heart, he still has doubts. But then I want you to picture this. God in his grace reaffirms him that Sarah will become pregnant in this next year and they are going to have a son and his name is to be Isaac and through Isaac the covenant will be everlasting and this will happen next year. Now, that is a gracious God who Abraham, God's revealed himself, he's told him over and over again and in this moment he laughs at the idea of, of God being able to do this with him and Sarah and instead of God shaming him or he reaffirms him by his grace, he actually reaffirms him in this of what he will do. 
Now, the covenant with God and Abraham and all of his descendants, there is an actual sign that they will be his people. They will be identified as God's people, and that is uh, circumcision. And so one of the things with that is that it's an outward sign of a greater reality of what is happening. It's this outward sign that they are identified as his. It's this outward sign that they are marked and they are distinct. They're a distinct chosen people. Now, in Genesis 12, I have a professor at Southern uh, Seminary who said, Genesis 12 is like the great commission of the Old Testament. They are a distinct people for the world. They're not just to eat different foods and be distinct and be different from other people for their own benefit, but for the benefit of those surrounding nations around them, that they might come to know that Yahweh is the God, the true God of everything. So in Genesis 12, in the call to Abraham, uh, the call to Abram at that time, was that you will be a blessing and all people of the earth will be blessed through you. It's this idea that through you and your life, through your distinction, you are actually going to bless other people. Now, this is an interesting, why was that the sign? You know, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants and after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God and to be your descendants. But why was that the sign? After thinking about that and reading about it, I I believe that the sign has to do because of the intimate nature of actually the act of it, but also it's the reproductive organ and it's through his line that this is to happen. So every male born from that point on is going to be physically marked by God. The parents are going to choose faith and obedience in Christ to be part of the promise, and they are actually going to be physically marked. Now, even to the point where when that child grows up, he is different from those who are outside of the line, the chosen people. And so when he would have a temptation to maybe go outside and procreate with someone who is outside of God's chosen people, he would be reminded even in that moment. The sign serves multiple purposes, but it identifies them. It sets them apart. And there's, there's this phrase, if there is no distinction, there is no witness. I believe that's true of us. If there is no distinction in our life from the culture around us, then there is no witness. And the thing that is equivalent in the New Testament to circumcision as a sign is believer's baptism. Just as the offspring of Abraham were marked and identified as Yahweh's people, those who come to place their faith in Christ and what he has done for us, that we can have a relationship with God and be restored, that he has paid the price for our sins on our behalf, that he has died and conquered death. When we celebrate baptism, which we're going to have the opportunity to do next week as a, as a family of faith, we're going to see those individuals who are saying, I want to identify publicly as a sign that I am identified with Jesus. I am buried with him in death and I am raised to what? Walk in newness of life. It's a perfect example of what we see here, that Abraham is to be identified, to be marked, and then that he is to walk with God. So for us, 
what would this look like for our distinction to be our witness of God's grace? What sets them apart? To be a blessing to others where we live, where we work, and where we hang out. Now, in uh, this series, we've had... uh, the P and the R representing the promise and the reality. And Lloyd's used this and, and Rob has used this to illustrate that sometimes the promise feels, is firm because God has said it, but our reality feels like it's shifting. So Abram, Abraham is now 99 years old, but the promise is not matching his reality. So Abram says in his heart, how can this be? I know that you're saying that this is going to be a reality, but it doesn't match the reality of the life. He is a man of faith, but he doubts. What about our realities? Think about this a lot. As a family of faith, as, as believers in Christ, what are the things that we need to be reminded of this morning of God's promises to us? Even when our reality doesn't quite feel like the promise is true, What are the promises that we need to be reminded of? Trusting God even when it doesn't seem like the promise is reality. We spend our greatest energy trying to control all of life. We spend the most energy in temporary things. And last week, Rob said these phrases that stuck out to me. When we don't trust God at our core, we turn and trust other things. They will not satisfy We then try and control things we were not made to control. We saw that last last week when we walked through the story of Hagar. What did Sarai do? The reality in her life is that she is not a mother. And she is, through the hurt, she ends up victimizing other people. She tries to grab control of her life to make it a reality. She demands it. And then what happens out of that? Blame and guilt and she ends up hurting other people out of it. See, I think that's true. When we don't believe and trust God and his promises, we are forced to turn to the temporary things of life to satisfy us. Instead of God being sovereign, instead of God being the one that's in control of our lives and trusting that, even when we doubt, even bringing that doubt to him, what we have a tendency to do is to try to look in temporary things in life to fulfill our identity, our meaning, our fulfillment. We do this with money. We do this with people's approval. We do this in all sorts of ways. We do this with our performance of how we perform at work, or how we perform, we're trying to do all these things for God. What are the temporary things that you're trying to fill within your life where only God is saying that his, him and his promises can fulfill? There's such a temptation for us to turn and make ourselves the center of our faith where we're putting our security, identity, and trust in. There's such a temptation for us to do this all the time. So what would it look like if you walked with God even in the midst of your reality? The name was to be a reminder of the promise to Abraham. It was a sign, it was a reminder to him to walk in obedience with God. So the question I have for us this morning is, what if we embraced who God said we were and his promises rather than who we think we are or who we're trying to live up to? Now, I want you to take your uh, name tag on your seat. 
This is how I want us to apply this message to our lives this morning. When God changed his name, it was a guarantee that he would be a father of multitudes. Abram then had to put his faith that what God was saying was actually true, even though his reality didn't line up. So if you had to put a name on this, what would God be saying of you that is true, but that you have a struggle to believe it in your life? What is a promise that God says is true, but that you're having a hard time believing it in your life? An example of that could be, I am accepted in Christ. I'm loved. I'm forgiven. I'm not alone. Now, circumcision was an external sign of this greater reality. It was identifying us with the truth. It was identifying them with the promise. The name equaled the promise. The circumcision was the outward sign of the promise, the chosen people. And by faith, they performed that act, believing the promise and trusting God that they would be his people. So this is what we're going to do this morning to end. Tim is going to sing a song pretty much over us as a response. And I want us, as we're thinking through that as the song is going, to write something down of where we need to shift our trust from ourselves to the promise, from a temporary thing to the promise. And I'm going to give you some examples. I'm going to walk you through kind of an exercise of how to do this. But I want you to think through, what would I write down in this that God is saying is true? It's a promise. He's revealed it to us but I have a hard time believing it because of the reality of my life. So would you close your eyes with me and walk us through this? I want you to picture Jesus calling you. I actually want you to picture Jesus saying your name, that he is inviting you to himself. And as you're walking towards them, is there something that is weighing you down that you're carrying on your way to Jesus? Are you carrying anxiety or worry or control, shame, feeling unworthy, not feeling good enough, not feeling you're performing? I want you to actually picture what that looks like and, and picture yourself actually walking towards Jesus, carrying this rock or, or, or this weight on your shoulders that makes you stumble. And it feels like a burden. And are, are you willing to surrender the thing that you're carrying? Are you willing to trade it? Are you willing to trade your feeling of unworthiness for being loved? And that's what Jesus calls you. Are you willing to change your insecurity, surrender that for security in Christ? your control for trust, your sin for forgiveness.
your doubt for faith. And I want you to actually physically drop the weight, the thing that you're trading, you're transferring your trust from to. And I want you to feel yourself feeling lighter and freer and then Jesus' words to you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come rest in Jesus because of who he is and who you are in him. And as Tim sings this song, I want you to write down what is the promise that is true but that you have a hard time believing the thing that you're trading, your doubt for faith, and then write that down on your name tag as Tim sings over us.